Good evening. Thank you. Thank you very much, everybody, for coming. Wonderful to have the whole group at this very, very special exhibition. My name is Milena Kalinowska, and I'm director of public programs, and I'm going to say just a few welcoming words. Uh, the walkthrough will be delivered today by Kerry Brower, our interim director and chief curator of the Hirshhorn Museum. Um, before walking with him, uh, I'd like to just to say a few words about Kerry. He became, uh, he joined the Hirshhorn Museum in 2000 and became the chief curator and deputy director. Now, as I said, he's an interim director. Before moving to Washington DC, he was director of the Museum of Modern Art in Oxford. And prior to that, he was curator at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles. He has organized and co-organized numerous exhibitions among individual shows that he put together are Hiroshi Sugimoto, Ed Rusher, Jeff Wall, Robert Irvin, Gustav Metzger, and Yves Klein. Other exhibitions are thematic shows, also quite amazing, visual music, open city, street photography since 1950, hall of mirrors, art and film since 1945, notorious Alfred Hitchcock in contemporary art, and two-part investigation of contemporary film and video work titled The Cinema Effect, Illusion, Reality, and the Moving, and the Moving Image. Both Visual Music and Yves Klein received first place among awards for the in, from the International Association of Art Critics. Kerry was also co-artistic director of the 2004 Gwangju Biennale in South Korea. Which Marlena also worked on. <laughs> we worked together then and it, and it was very lucky that we were together because it was an easy situation for us to work with. But we had a great, great team of curators. In 2012, he was curator of the Hirschhorn's Duck Aiken Songkwan projection on the entire facade of the museum and was the co-organizing curator of the Hirshhorn's Ai Weiwei, According to What, fabulous exhibition. He is currently, as I have said, co-curator of Damage Control, Art and Destruction since 1950. You may have seen he received a fabulous um, write-up in the New York Times for this exhibition, and there was also a very thorough a review of the show of the Washington Post, but now we have an opportunity to hear about the show from Kerry Brower himself. Thank you. Thanks, Melina. And uh, thinking back on those good old days of Quan Ju, no, no, no thematic exhibition was more difficult than uh, getting that done. Um, th this exhibition actually was a long time um, in the works. Um, I, oh, I always hate to say it because it always sounds ridiculous, but we, we were probably uh, working on this show for five years, off and on. And uh, I know that sounds, you know, like a ludicrous amount of time, but what happens is you do other projects in between, you sort of set it on the shelf for a while, you change the dates on a show. But my co-curator for this exhibition was Russell Ferguson, who is a professor in the art department at UCLA. And uh, he was here uh, uh, earlier installing the show, but was unable to make the opening, unfortunately, if some of you were there because of an emergency in his family. But, uh, and I'm sorry he's not here tonight. Uh, he and I have uh, 
it would be much better because we'd be having funny dialogues between uh, the two of us, but I got to carry it on my own as a soliloquy tonight. So um, I, I want to tell you how the show got started. Uh, it, it was interesting because I did a show with, um, uh, when I was in Oxford, as, as uh, Melina said, I did a show uh, of Gustav Metzger's work. Now, Gustav Metzger's not a really well-known artist, and he particularly wasn't well-known in 1997 when we did the exhibition. Um, but he was sort of an underground figure uh, in the English art scene. And he was known for uh, something called auto-destructive art which basically meant um, art that destroyed itself as you created it. His parents had died in a concentration camp, and he had been sent as a child from Germany to England, where a lot of children were sent to escape the Holocaust. And so he devoted his life to doing art of social and, and political issues, uh, and also in protest of things that were happening in the world. Even back then, he was concerned about the environment. But of course, one of the main things he was concerned about was uh, the atomic bomb and the hydrogen bomb that were, were more and more uh, tests were being conducted at the time. The exhibition came out of an idea, as I was writing the catalog essay for that, I thought about the idea that there was more than just Gustav dealing with these destructive themes in contemporary art. And while I think that destruction as a, an approach in art goes all the way back throughout art history, there was something about around the year 1950 that seemed to signal an increase and a more pervasive attitude about art uh, than we had had before uh, in art history. And this was, of course, caused in part by the uh, uh, Holocaust, by World War II, by the fire bombings of Dresden, and, of course, uh, the, the destruction of Hiroshima and uh, Nagasaki. Um, and it seemed to me that the art could actually explain something about the time and why did artists begin to embrace destruction uh, in new ways. And what you're going to see as we walk through this exhibition uh, are really two kinds of works of art. One kind is representational, the representation of destruction in artists' work gained momentum. And that's scattered all the way through the show. Uh, it's not something confined to, say, the 1950s. Uh, the second kind is actual destruction of objects or things or even other people's artwork uh, that you'll see in the exhibition. And some of this is done out of protest, out of vandalism, out of an idea of calling attention to destruction in society. One of the things that I think these artists all share in common is the notion that after World War II, after the Holocaust, after the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, after the Soviets uh, got a hold of the atomic bomb in 1949, one of the things that I think becomes apparent in the show is the fact that these artists felt art was kind of helpless in the face of the destruction, the, the possibility of total annihilation of the world. And what did art mean? How do you do just a painting? 
you know, after the Holocaust? How do you do a painting to make your statement when the whole world could blow up uh, at, any at any moment? And so I believe that around 1950 or thereabouts, there was a sort of new movement that happened. R right after World War II, there was a series of artworks made about World War II, whether they were made by Max Ernst in something called After the Rain, which is a masterpiece at the Wadsworth Athenaeum, whether they were made by uh, Dubuffet and his sort of painting of flesh or Fautrier, uh, Giacometti's emaciated individuals. But this was all kind of immediate reaction to the uh, milieu uh, right after the, the war. What Russell and I were looking for was something different. It was a demarcation of artists who no longer were willing to wallow in that destruction, but wanted to move forward and fight it. And that's where the exhibition picks up, and that's why it doesn't go from 1945 to the present, but from about 1950 to the present. In 1949, the Soviets got a hold of the atomic bomb. Everything became much more paranoid in this country and other places, and that seemed to be a catalyst for, or one of the catalysts for things happening. So let's step in the first gallery, and you know we're going to see quite a uh, you know spectacle in the first gallery, and I'll talk a little bit about the two works in, in the first room. Here, here in the first gallery, we have two kinds of works that I think kind of start a thread running all the way through the exhibition. One of them is work that happened from the very late 40s. The dates are a little bit unclear. The, the documentation says 1950s, but from what I can find, it could have been anywhere from 47 to 54 or thereabouts. These are slow motion uh, films taken by someone named Harold Edgerton. And Edgerton actually is pretty well known as a photographer and actually is embraced by the art community nowadays for his um, high-speed photography of things such as bullets going through balloons or, or crashing through um, uh, light bulbs or, or, or the most famous one, a drip of uh, liquid that drops down into a, a, a bowl of, of milk and then sends the shock waves of, of the uh, milk out. But he was hired actually by the government to take um, these, these uh, studies of nuclear detonations in the late 40s and the early 50s. And I, I wanted these to begin the exhibition because what they signal for me is something really important as a theme that runs through the show. And that is that, for me anyway, they are incredibly powerful images that are quite frightening and at the same time kind of beautiful and compelling and something I can't hardly take my eyes away from. I kind of got to watch the next explosion when it's coming up. And so this dichotomy of that sort of fascination with destruction 
and also being repelled by it at the same time. The sort of worry that these nuclear detonations were going to, could get out of hand and destroy the entire world, and at the same time being fascinated by looking at, at the power of, of these things, is, is one of the themes of the exhibition. And it's this idea of the spectacle versus the sort of um, protest you know, film about what could come uh, of the nuclear arms race. On the other side of the room is a piece that comes out of a performance we had on opening night here at the museum. And this is done by an artist named Rafael Ortiz. And Ortiz was known all the way back in the early 60s for doing something called uh, piano destruction concerts. And in his, uh, you'll see a film of one of them later in the show, although this one was much more dramatic than the one he did back in the 1960s. Um, what he does is he takes a piano now, it could be a violin or it could be some other musical instrument, but he always chooses a piano. And what he does is he destroys that piano, but it's not a simple process. He actually wrestles with the piano. He takes an ax to it. It, take, it took maybe four, 30 minutes, 40 minutes for him to destroy, to this extent, um, the piano. And so what you're seeing in this room are the two different kinds of destruction that happened in this show ongoing. One, the representational imagery of destruction. Destruction as an image. The other one, actual physical destruction that artists took up uh, in the 1950s and particularly the 1960s in terms of performance art. And Ortiz is one of the, uh, the, of the uh, great examples uh, of this and participated in something called the Destruction in Art Symposium in 1966 um, in um, London, which Gustav Metzger, who I mentioned at the beginning, who had done the show of in, in um, uh, Oxford, uh, was the uh, actual creator of, of that conference. So we actually did this piece here. He's donated it to the collection. And just for you music lovers, I'd want to make it very clear that I play the piano, and I love pianos. So it hurts when I watch this uh, performance. But I want to assure you, hi, Tom. I want to assure you that um, we bought for the performance a very, very, very inexpensive Chinese uh, baby grand called a Vivace, which I've never even heard of. And, and we bought it new because Artis wanted a new one for this. And we wanted it black because we knew it by that point it was going into the collection. And we had him destroy uh, uh, that. I could never have allowed him to destroy a Steinway. It just would not have happened. Um, but one of the things that I should say about Ortiz is it's not about just the destruction of the object. He sees these objects as things that existed in other forms before they were brought together as pianos, as trees, as wood, in the old days as ivory, um, as, as metal parts, uh, uh, and he sees it as being brought together and serving a purpose other than what it was originally meant to serve. And so, in a way, what he does is he pours the salt around it, which is a ritual often used in, in other cultures. 
and then inside the salt ring, he actually does the destruction, which is meant to release the spirit of the, of the piano out back into the world again. By destroying something, you're actually creating a release of it. So it's a positive effect. Now, there's no doubt that it's also meant to demonstrate and kind of be a protest against the possibility of this, which was the possible annihilation of all culture in society. And Gustav Metzger, who I mentioned, and Ortiz both were protesting against the atomic bombs that were being tested at the time and were worried about those. So that this is all mixed up with the idea of destroying culture because, in fact, many artists feel like they have to destroy what came before them so they can move on afterwards. But it's also about the release of the spirit out of the piano and about a protest uh, showing destruction in the world. The artists felt at the time, Adorno said, how do you do poetry after Auschwitz, right? Well, you could say the same about painting. How do you make a little painting after Auschwitz? Does it mean anything? So, well, some artists embraced fighting fire with fire, using destruction in their work to call attention to the destructive potential uh, in society. By the way, I want to just thank you all for being here tonight because, you know, walking through a show about destruction isn't necessarily the easiest thing in the world to do, so I do appreciate you all coming out uh, for this. But at the same time, if I can just interject and say, you know, talking about the spectacle of destruction, you know, it's interesting because I've gone to a series of movies over the last, say, 10 years or so, and one of the things that I've noticed more and more is our desire as a society to watch destruction in movies. We can't take our eye off of it. Even films that I didn't expect to be destructive. I went to see the, the last Superman film called Man of Steel. Have any of you seen that, that film? Has anyone seen it? Because, you know, it wasn't that good, actually. But it... it it, it, at the end, Superman has a fight with the bad guy, right? Well, they don't just fight in this Superman movie. They throw each other through the buildings in New York City until New York City is completely destroyed. In, in, uh, uh, there's nothing left. And I'm thinking, why are you even fighting? There's nothing left in New York City or uh, uh, Gotham you know, at the time. So um, destruction in our society is still definitely here. And that's one of the reasons that Russell and I decided to go all the way to the present particularly with terrorist acts that have been going on and the response to those. We're in an area of the show now where it starts to really start to pick up. On the way in, you saw these images by someone named Arnold Odermott, an artist that's not that well known now, but he's becoming better known. The reason he's not that well known was he was a police photographer um, in Switzerland and also a baker, by the way. And he actually took these photographs for the police department of accidents that had happened. And after looking at these, a lot of us have been looking at him for a number of years and we've been thinking, my God, this guy was a great photographer. He wasn't just, you know, recording or documenting. He had an aesthetic sense about him, about this destruction. And it's sort of after the fact, but it's caught in such a beautiful aesthetic way, we needed to include his works uh, in the exhibition. Um, 
on my right over here, your left, is a work that's from our collection, and it's by the artist John Baldessari. This work is called Cremation Project. Now, in the late 60s, John Baldessari decided to reinvent himself as an artist. And the way that he chose to do it was he took all of his paintings, pretty much everything he owned as an artwork and had made up to that point. And he uh, actually went to a crematorium and he had the crematorium uh, burn uh, all of the stuff that he had made up to that time. And from that moment, he ceased to be a painter and he turned into a conceptual artist after that. So here's an artist who actually applies destruction to his own work, destroys it. And by the way, the little jar of cookies is a recipe he had for actually putting the ashes of his paintings and making cookies out of them. So those are the original paintings of John Baldessari. I will tell you, I have not tried the cookies. I don't know how they taste, and I'm not going to. Uh, but he took an ad out in the paper that John Baldessari actually had lived from 53 to 1966, and, and he actually uh, was destroyed at this crematorium. He's actually uh, died. Uh, but of course, he was reinvented. Um, on my left over here is an interesting example of the work, of the beautiful work of Via Selmans, who takes imagery from World War II, very often from World War II, a, a, a bomber plane going down, uh, Bikini Atoll, the 46 uh, uh, tests at Bikini Atoll, uh, Hiroshima, torn out of a magazine, and actually recreates them in pencil here, uh, but they're mediated, right? They're one step removed. They're, they're the original they're the original thing put into a newspaper and then reframed by her, redone by her. So you're starting to take steps away from the initial destruction that happened in the world. It was no longer right there. It was never there for us. The, the government didn't allow a lot of the information out about what had happened in Hiroshima. And I think these, in a funny way, are kind of metaphors for the way that the information got disseminated slowly through different forms of the media and finally was used by the artist to sort of show the way that um, destruction exists in a form that isn't really real, that we almost can't accept as real. It's just a picture in a magazine, and even here, not even a picture, but a recreation of the picture, very removed from it. And we'll see television playing a role in this as well. Um, this work here, it's, it, it, one of the key works in the exhibition. Small little work, looks like nothing, right? This work is done by Robert Rauschenberg, and it's a piece from the early 50s in which Rauschenberg actually went to an artist who, Rauschenberg wasn't very well known in 1953, but there was an artist living in his same building who was well known, and that was Willem de Kooning. And, Rauschenberg decided that he would actually destroy one of de Kooning's works. And he did this as kind of a conceptual idea. He went up and he knocked on de Kooning's door. And his idea was to ask de Kooning for a drawing which he could then erase. That was the project. Rauschenberg actually felt that he would never get that far. De Kooning would just throw him out. 
And so he knocks on the door and at first no answer and he thinks, I'm glad, I'm glad de Kooning isn't home. Now I can call this the peace. This was the peace, the process of doing it. Boom, the door opens. So de Kooning answers the door, right? And so Rauschenberg's kind of hemming and hawing and he's saying, um, you know, can I come in? I'd like to talk to you about one of your drawings. So de Kooning invites him in and they sit down and he says, I've got this idea where I'd like to actually take one of your pieces and I'd like to erase it. And now he figures de Kooning's going to toss him out, right? Instead, de Kooning looks at him and says, I get it. I get it. You want to destroy what came before so you can move on. He said, okay, okay, I'll give you a drawing. But I'm not going to give you an easy drawing. I'm going to give you a hard drawing, and you're going to have a lot of trouble erasing this. So he gives him one with lots of color in it, with lots of, of, of strong strokes. And so Rauschenberg spends the next several weeks trying to erase this drawing. So a little bit like Ortiz struggling with the piano, you know, it, he had to struggle to get this drawing erased. And what was left is this sort of just fine memory of, of what the original drawing was. But many times artists seem to have to get out from under the shadow of things that were done before them. And you find that a lot, especially at this period, when it was so strong with abstract expressionism in New York, you know, leading the way on everything. The shadow was so intense for these younger what became known as pop artists, um, that they had to actually fight their way uh, through it. So this is an example of using destruction as a means of moving on. The interesting part is de Kooning completely got it. No, just erased it. Yes. And this is on loan from the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art that almost rarely, just very rarely, lends this piece, this piece out. Now we're going to go buy a film. I'm not going to take you into it because there's too many people, but please come back to the film in the next room, which is by Bruce Connor, who I consider to be one of the great artists of the 20th century, you know, along with Rauschenberg de Kooning. Um, and it's a film uh, called simply a movie. And it runs for maybe 10 minutes or so, and it is clips taken out of both feature films and documentary films. And uh, it starts very light-hearted, um, almost like a funny Marx Brothers movie. And then it moves, it cuts all over the place as he pieced different films together. And it slowly gets darker and darker and more violent and more violent until you feel this incredible undertow of violence in American society and the paranoia that was there in 1958 when he did the film. And then near the end of it, you start to get several images that are just you know, kind of horrifying, bridges that are collapsing, um, the Hindenburg crashing, uh, the tests at Bikini Atoll, those very tests right there, exploding. And um, the last image in the film is always a mystery. Uh, he suddenly, after all of this uh, uh, disaster, he cuts to a diver floating around in the water. And the diver goes down and finds a sunken ship. And he disappears into the hull of the ship, and that's the end of the film. And you never know, did he just disappear and we all were annihilated? Or did he find his way out 
some way. But if you have a chance, look at this, because I think it's one of the great works of art of the 20th century. I wanted, to come, I wanted to come into this room because, you know, not everything in the show is real serious, you know. Erasing the de Kooning can be seen as a kind of funny thing, actually. And uh, Russell and I wanted to make sure that as we did the exhibition, that everything wasn't just explosions <laughs> and, and disasters, uh, in, in a way. That there's a funny side to all of this as well. Well, well one of the funny, th I, I think kind of funny, is the work of Jean Tangley, the, the Swiss artist. Um, he created, we have him here talking behind me, so it's hard for me to talk over him, but in a minute we're going to actually see his homage to New York, in which he created a large-scale machine on, in 1962 on the outside uh, in the plaza at, at the Museum of Modern Art. And it, he, they actually started the piece running, and the piece, there you see it. And the piece actually gets out of hand a little bit more than he even thinks and catches on fire. He saw these machines, and we have a small one in our collection over here. He saw these machines as human beings, as living things. But like all living things, we seem to have a tendency to destroy ourselves. We're almost self-destructive, or as Gustav might have said, auto-destructive in a way. And so this, this very famous thing happened at the Museum of Modern Art and destroyed itself, and the fire, the fire department uh, showed up. And, and MoMA still has a little bits and remnants of this uh, 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 in, their, in their collection. Uh, you might see over here, I don't know if you can see it, but behind you is a film that we did of this in motion. And you can see that when it, it moves, it starts to throw a lot of stuff off of it as it moves, and then we always have to put it back together again. So we actually filmed it at one point so that you could see the sort of funny, funny movement um, uh, of it. But uh, again, like a human being, only destroying itself. I can't help but just point this out to you in the hopes that you'll come back and sit and, and listen to this. This is a tiny little piece done on an old 60s television, um, which we managed to pick up. This is a broadcast from 1962 by David Brinkley. And David Brinkley, to my surprise, was into Jean Tangley. And he produces a whole television show in the evening on Jean Tangley and Nikki de Saint-Fall, who was his wife at the time, uh, creating a piece out in the Mojave Desert where nuclear tests happened. And they put a lot of different objects together and this lasts for about a half an hour. And it even has David Brinkley's commentary in it. And I have to say that Brinkley's pretty straightforward with it. Not only does he seem to understand Tangley's work in this, but he even points out to over in Europe, there were a series of discussions being uh, 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 unraveling at the time about nuclear arms control. And he equates the two things together, and he's quite right that it was exactly uh, about that. But anyway, if you get a chance, sit here and watch this, because it's wonderful to see David Brinkley, barely tongue-in-cheek, talking about um, Jean Tangley. I just had to point this out, because every people can miss it easily in the show. 
Well, th well, this rather small room actually contains, in a funny sort of way, uh, one of the hearts of the exhibition. And this is a room that contains the work of Gustav Metzger, who I talked about already, who became very well known for his autodestructive art, uh, particularly something he called his acid paintings at the time, in which he would paint with acid. Uh, usually outdoor, well, always outdoors, with a gas mask on that almost made it look like he was coming, walking right out of, the, say, the First World War. And he would make these paintings that destroyed themselves as quickly as he could paint them. So it was a, 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 basically a protest piece about the destruction in the world. He was very concerned about the atomic bomb, already concerned about the environment uh, at this particular time, which he writes about way back in 66. And, uh, well, actually, this is a little bit earlier. And he actually also pulled together a very large conference in London in 66 that brought many, many artists to London to discuss the role of destruction in art. And two of those artists are also in the room. This is one of the original piano destruction concerts by uh, Rafael Ortiz uh, that's happening here. And he's quite a ways along on destroying this particular piano. And over here, Yoko Ono was a major part of, of the exhibition as well. This to me is one of the most powerful pieces of, of the 1960s. This is a work by Yoko Ono in which she simply sat on a stage and put a pair of scissors in front of her. And then she invited the audience up to cut off whatever clothing they wanted from her body. The tension in this particular film, which was shot, by the way, by the Maisley brothers, who were quite well-known cinema verite artists, and by the way, D.A. Pennybaker, anyone who knows about film, also shot the John Tangley piece in, in the other room, who just won an Academy Award, by the way, uh, last year. Uh, but this is Yoko being incredibly vulnerable to whatever the public wanted to do to her, which is pretty ironic considering what happened in her life uh, later on. And then over here are a series of her conceptual works which came out of a book called Grapefruit. And I might just mention the destructive kind of poetic aspects of a couple. This one's called Painting to be Stepped On. Leave a piece of canvas or, unfit or finished painting on the floor or the street, meaning that people would walk all over it. This one I couldn't help but put in because it's collecting piece number two, break a contemporary museum into pieces with the means you have chosen. Don't get any ideas. <laughs> Collect the pieces and put them together again with glue. Um, this one's painting to hammer a nail. Cast your shadow or other people's shadows on a canvas, wall, board, or glass. Take the shape of the shadow, solve any mathematical equation, and hammer a nail on that point uh, in the painting. So you can see the destructive element and yet kind of poetic um, at, the, at the same time. Steal all the clocks and watches in the world, destroy them. Destroying time. And this is also called cut piece, and just like the film. And this is cut out any portion of a painting you like or a piece of paper and throw it off of a high building. 
So these are things you could do yourself. This one may be my favorite. Hide and seek. Hide until everybody goes home. Hide until everybody forgets about you. Hide until everybody dies. And actually there's one here that I think I skipped, uh, which I want to point out. The one about hiding until everyone dies kind of comes back to me with the last piece in the show that we'll see. And this one is called uh, Line Piece to Lamont Young, who was a composer. Um, and she simply says, draw a line, erase the line. Very similar to Rauschenberg. Well, we sort of open up to a kind of a pop room here, I guess you could call it, although we're not trying to do, you know, we have a lot of themes running through this exhibition, and we mentioned some on the, uh, the panel at the beginning of the show, but um, I, I don't like, personally, I don't like to, um, I don't like to pigeonhole artists into one theme. You know, because I feel their, their works are often so multi-layered that it doesn't make sense to limit them to one thing. Yet I do like to pick up threads as you walk through an exhibition and leave it up to you as the public to find the threads that link things together. Now, as I said at the beginning, there's artists who deal with imagery in their work. Ed Ruscha, we happen to be fortunate, this is actually a piece from our collection, and it was one of the catalysts in a way for doing the show. Um, it's, it's a major work by Ed Ruscha, painted between 1965 and 68. And as you see, it's an image of what the LA County Museum looked like at the time. And it really did, it did have water in it. It was designed by Pereira, and this is what it looked like. Only as you look at this kind of almost architectural rendering, you find find out in the corner over here that the building seems to be catching on fire. Well, what, is the, what does it mean? I mean, Ed Ruscha is like trying to become a pop artist at the time where abstract expressionism is still happening. So one could read this as him wanting to destroy the art that came before so that he could do the art after. It could also be read as a kind of critique of art institutions or art museums. It could also even be read as him destroying his own work because by this time he actually had work in the museum so his own work would be going up in flames. And he, in fact, he painted a number of pictures like Norm's, which is, does everyone know what Norm's is? I come from LA so I always forget. Norm's is a coffee shop chain in, in LA, although it's dying out. And he painted Norm's on fire uh, several times. Also in this room we've got uh, Andy Warhol over here who seem to take this kind of large notion of destruction and limit it down to um, something that was on a more daily aspect, that we seem to destroy ourselves on a daily basis. And, you know, these are, are from his Death and Disaster series, and they're pulled right out of the newspaper, as are the electric chairs uh, behind us, uh, all about the idea that in our daily lives, we're surrounded by disaster all the time. I mean, you're a lot more likely to get killed by an automobile than you are to be blown up by an atomic bomb, you know, or to be in a museum when it catches on fire. The large Jack Goldstein uh, painting over here is very similar in some ways uh, 
uh, comes much later, 81 I think is the date on it, and it's a work that reminds me of the Via Selman's paintings in some ways. It's taking imagery from World War II and replaying it, but it also plays into that idea, unlike Selman's, of the whole spectacle of the thing. The fact that it can be beautiful to see something actually blowing up. And what does that mean for us? Why, do, why are we drawn to things like that? But we clearly are. I mean, in, in, the movies certainly show that uh, uh, all the time. I'm gonna press on a little bit faster because we have a film starting downstairs at eight o'clock and uh, it's, it's called The Radiant and it's about the Fukushima uh, nuclear uh, disaster in Japan and it's actually a wonderful uh, film. Behind me here is a, a work that um, uh, basically Philip Kedencott wrote a really interesting and nice review of the exhibition, but he didn't like this work behind me here. Um, and, you know, while Philip and I, I think, agree on a lot of things, I have to say that I'd buy this work in a second if it was uh, available. I absolutely love this piece uh, behind me here. This is, this is a work, first of all, by Goya. It's the Disasters of War. It's a multiple. There are many editions of this. Uh, but the Chapman brothers, the English artists, took this Goya edition and they took one of the editions and they actually altered it with their own painting, painting grotesque, grotesque almost cartoon-like faces, but, but grotesque ones, over the top of some of the things that are happening in the piece. So what you have here is a work that's about the disasters of war, about destruction to begin with. Then you have a work which they have taken and they have, one could say, destroyed Goya's own prints of the disasters of war. And yet they quite, they kind of haven't because they've only painted small little bits and pieces. You can still very much see the disasters of war. So one could say that one was about disaster, the next one was about them destroying the Goyas or adding to those disasters and updating them to create a whole new piece. This is something that maybe Ai Weiwei is doing over here with the dropping of the Han Dynasty urn. And for those of you who came to the Ai Weiwei show, I apologize that we use this piece again, but I couldn't help it because it's become such a quintessential example of destruction, I didn't see how we could leave it out of the exhibition. And what he's doing is dropping a Han Dynasty urn. Now, it sounds horrendous that he's dropping this urn and he has this, in my view, he has this almost childlike sense on his face of, look what I'm doing. You know, how about that? And he's calling attention, of course, to a lot of issues that happened in China, the valuation of works of art, the Chinese government putting valuations on work of art. What are things worth? Um, ironically, Neolithic vases, which is destroyed, are often a thousand bucks, 
and you'd pay a lot more for that photograph actually right now of him destroying that object. There's also thousands of those urns around. So it's not quite as simple as it sounds. But drawing attention to the fact that who puts value on things? And I'm not going to necessarily play by the rules on this valuation. Opposite, and the opposite end of the room is a work by Thomas Demand, a German artist who at, at the um, Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge, somebody walked along and tripped and knocked over two uh, uh Qing Dynasty, Qing Dynasty vases and destroyed them. So Thomas Demand recreates everything. So this is not the actual photograph. He took the photograph, then he recreates everything in his studio, usually out of cardboard, and then he re-photographs it. So this is an act of photographing a destructive situation and recreating it as something new and then photographing it. So it's both destruction and creation simultaneously. In the middle, Sam Durant from Los Angeles, who takes very modernist buildings and vandalizes them in, in these models. Uh, almost, uh, well, he's got a photograph of himself at one point flipping off modern architecture, like he's really sick of it and he's ready to vandalize it. Um, you can see the remnants. We missed the big explosion. And so if you have a chance to take a look at the big explosion sometime, this is a piece by Ori Gerst in which it starts out like a Dutch landscape painting. And you actually think it's just a painting sitting there. But it grows more intense in volume until the whole thing explodes suddenly. And, and he's an Israeli artist. And he's lived with the, the idea that explosion could happen at, at any moment. And so uh, that's the end of it. It's all done in very, very slow motion. So if you get a chance, look at it. A work by uh, Yoshitomo Nara, who takes uh, prints of uh, Edo period um, uh, uh, works by Japanese artists like um, Hokusai, and then paints back over him his own individual idea of what's happening with children nowadays, carrying knives around this kind of creepy, dark environment that we've created uh, in our contemporary culture. Now we're going to go through a very dark moment in the exhibition as if there hasn't been dark moments already. We're going to go through a, a, the darkest moment in the exhibition, which is a work by Christian Marclay, uh, who you may know some of you has done The Clock a couple of years ago, which was that 24-hour piece that he did with film clips. This is an earlier work, and this is a piece in which um, he ties a Fender Stratocaster to the back of a pickup truck and he drives it through a Texas landscape. And it's actually, it's meant to be a complex homage to the young man who was lynched in Texas by being dragged behind a, a pickup truck. But it's complicated with the idea of the destruction of a Stratocaster like Jimi Hendrix would have done. By the way, I want to let you know, since we're on the subject of Stratocasters and um, guitars, that Pete Townsend, who was the first to smash a guitar on stage with The Who, thought of the idea because he was taking a class, an art class with Gustav Metzger in London. And he admits all over that this is where he got the idea that a destructive act could be a positive thing. 
And so then Jimi Hendrix, of course, also came along and, by the way, did his last burning of a guitar here in Washington, D.C. at the Vanguard Theater in 1967 with Pete Townsend in the audience, by the way. And uh, so what you're going to see in the next room kind of harks to the violence of rock and roll, but the violence of rock and roll is often a positive statement, right? It's a revolutionary statement. It's a statement about changing things. And so that gets, uh, that's the kind of protest that I think is happening with Mark Clay dragging this guitar along in the place of the man who was killed, a protest using a Fender Stratocaster, the guitar that Hendrix uh, used. Now, we won't be able to stay and watch it, and if you wa walk into it for a second, the sound, we've, we've used incredible sound baffling materials to keep the sound level down, but it's meant to be loud. This room actually sort of came together as we were installing the show. We didn't mean for every piece that was here to be here, but it all kind of worked out. The um, work that you see behind me here is by Jeff Wall, a Canadian artist uh, who actually had a retrospective here at one time. It was the first show I ever had traveled to the Hirshhorn. Just as an aside note, I was always worried about what it was going to look like in the Hirshhorn before I worked here with these big light boxes on the walls, and, and it, it was the best stop of all. This is when I was at MOCA in Los Angeles and I thought MOCA would look a lot better, but no, it looked better at the Hirshhorn with this kind of cinematic effect going all around. But this is his very first light box that Jeff ever did, and it's a piece about destruction. It actually is a kind of remake of The Death of Sardanopolis by uh, Delacroix. And it uses the same colors and the same composition and the same form. It's a bedroom, it's being destroyed. But now it could be domestic violence, perhaps. Uh, it could be a movie set uh, of some kind. Of course, he recreates everything like, uh, like a movie set. And so you get this sense of, um, what happened here? What, what was the violence uh, that took place here? Coming out of the Chris Judd Markley is sort of interesting to run into Douglas Gordon and these pieces called Smoke and Mirrors, which are all about pop icons, and yet they're mirrors. So when you walk up to the pop icon, he has burned areas out of them that reveal the mirror behind them. So what happens, but you actually see yourself in these. So you become the pop icon, but you also become the vandal who is destroying the pipe icon. And that's exactly what we like to do in society, right? We like to raise these people up on pedestals, and then we like to knock them out right from under them. So uh, you are complicit in this piece over here. This was a piece over here by uh, Mona Hatoum, a Palestinian artist, who actually has taken uh, the shapes of Gurney and then she's created them out of uh, glass, out of crystal, so that the um, ability for them to be destructive is itself destroyed and becomes something that has been um, negated. Um, and I think it's a, a very beautiful piece. The first time I ever saw these, they were actually in Venice and were done out of Murano glass, which was really quite lovely. And uh, I just love the idea that you're creating a grenade that can no longer be used as a grenade. 
Okay, this, this is the last big room anyway in the exhibition, although we have some codas happening in the show after this. Um, in, in this room, we're seeing a variety of work which seems to me to sort of, wonder, you know, Russell and I talked a lot about stopping this show. First, we talked about stopping it in the 1950s, 60s, maybe early 70s, where it had to do with the Cold War, had to do with the atomic bomb. And then, you know, we started thinking about what was happening in the world and realized that by the 90s, terrorist acts were starting to happen all over the world and that artists were starting to respond to those as well. And we couldn't stop because it felt like in, in a funny sort of way, the whole thing was going to come full circle at some point, which it did. And so we felt it was important to go all the way from 1950 to the present. And we can't hit everything. There's many, many examples of destructive art that have happened, but we hope we give a kind of overview of many of the approaches to destructive art. Uh, in the middle of the gallery, we have a train by Juan Munoz. Some of you may know the Munoz on the outside of the museum called the conversation piece, which are the, the, the guys over in the corner that have the round bottom trying to speak with one another. This is another work of his, which he did in the last year of his life, um, which is a derailed train. In fact, it's called derailment. But if you happen to look inside the train, you'll also see like little remnants of cities so it's almost like the city itself moving along and then becoming uh, derailed. And um, we actually scraped the floor as we were trying to install this piece and they were going to come back and try to, you know, sand it out and paint it. And I said, no, nah, just leave the scrape because it looks great, at, like the train coming off the track. And... Um, over on the far end are works by Monica Bonvincini, who was here for uh, the panel discussion, as was Ori Gerst, as was Yoko Ono, and as was Rafael Ortiz. And her works deal with the environment. It's about the destruction from hurricanes, uh, clearly Katrina-oriented uh, in those paintings. Uh, the works behind me here are works by Thomas Ruf, a German artist who is known for many different kinds of photographs, but one of his series, which are extraordinarily powerful, are images of destruction that he simply takes off the internet. And then he blows them up to proportions that when you're standing across the room over there, you can make out what it is, but by the time you get here, they are so pixelated out, so tiled, that you can't hardly tell what's going on. Almost like a pointillist painting, you know, by Seurat. And the interesting thing about it is he refuses to come, he refuses to tell you what the destruction was, but he'll give you a little bit of hint um, uh, in the title uh, of the piece. And so, you know, this room is filled with, you know, more recent work. Luke Delahaye is a photojournalist who also blows his work up large to hang in galleries. And Walid Beshti photographed the Iraqi embassy in Berlin that was already uh, barren, and he went to photograph it 
and did so, but he did it with film that he already knew had gone through an x-ray machine and that had ruined it. So the film was ruined, the, the, the embassy was ruined, uh, and then he shot it back through the x-ray machine on the way out so it would get even more ruined as it came out. So you have a series of uh, destructions that happened here that some of which were out of his uh, control. I have to have you watch this because I personally find this incredibly moving, but a lot of people won't. It's a video by Laurel Nakadate, a young artist, still fairly young. This was very young when she did this, uh, not long after 2011. And the, and the Neil Young song, which is playing with it, is actually very poignant with what's happening. Um, it's about being disappeared, people not seeing you. She actually, she actually filmed herself against the sky of 9-11 when it actually happened and put herself in a Girl Scout. Was quick enough to think about putting herself in a Girl Scout uniform. And she then intercuts with images of sort of creepy violence that happens throughout American culture. We don't know what these stories are, but they're happening all the time. And the title of the piece is very meaningful to me. It's called Greater New York. So it's about 9-11, as you'll see, but it's also about Greater New York. What's Greater New York? It's America in general. Anyway, that's the ending, but if you see the whole thing, I think it's quite powerful. Now for the last room. In this room, um, we have two pieces, one of which is by an artist named Mercia Cantor, and all it is is a flag, a flag in silhouette. We don't know whose flag it is. It could be any country's flag. And the flag is caught on fire and the flag simply burns up. It's running on a 16 millimeter loop projector and it slowly burns up. It doesn't take it long, just a few minutes, but it's the disappearance of something, the disappearance in a way of a country, the disappearance of a symbol um, for a country that's just fading out. The sound effects on this always remind me of the exorcist somehow, I don't know why. This is a work by Dara Friedman. She works a lot with film, and in this film, she trashes a um, hotel bedroom, you know, much like rock and roll stars might do it. But she films it in 16 millimeter, and, and you can see the apparatus of the, of the, is very close to the screen. She likes it all to be one thing, that the, the projector's not hidden, that the apparatus is part of, of the film. But she runs it backwards so that she is destroying the room, but through technology, through film, she's able to put that room back together again. And so that's just the note I'd like to leave you on, is that we've gone through very destructive times since 1945, but 
maybe we can also put it back together again and be okay, particularly listen to artists um, uh, of all type. And that leaves us, uh, that brings us full circle and uh, we're showing a film downstairs, which I saw at Documenta and really loved called The Radiant. And it's a film by a, a group of artists called the Odalith Group. And it's a film about Fukushima and the nuclear power disaster. And I really loved this when I saw a documentary and I had to bring it here. It's too long to show in the, it's like an hour, so it's too long to show in the, but if you have a chance to uh, go down and see it right now, it's free downstairs, please take a look. And thank you very much uh, for coming tonight. Really appreciate it. <laughs>